Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. All right, it is time once again to review the news, and so Cody Townsend and I are here to talk about the outdoors-related news, and of course, as we do, we sneak in some not-very-outdoors-related stuff in there, too. You know, we like to keep a mix around here. So yeah, lots of good topics and lots of good debates in this conversation. And we do talk about the fact that currently in the lower 48 states, not a whole lot of snow showing up yet. But as I say in the conversation, the groomers here in Crested Butte are skiing great. And for the, I don't know if it's a handful of people or a bunch of people who like to think that we never ski groomers around here... Well, that's all we've been skiing, and it's been great. And if you feel like skiing groomers, you should hurry up and get out here because they're in really good condition. And if you don't feel like skiing groomers, well, we got several storms in the forecast for this coming week. And so we're looking forward to, frankly, all of the country getting some more snow on the ground. And that also means that we will be having more terrain openings around here and then we can, you know, ski groomers and moguls and steeps and all that other stuff. The other thing you should be doing is keeping in mind the blister summit that is coming February 20th through the 27th. We will include links to more information about that in the show notes to this episode. You can also find it on the blister website. This is shaping up nicely. I promise we're going to be dropping more announcements soon about some of the folks and some of the brands that are going to be there. We're getting really excited about this one. Can't wait to see everybody who was there last year. And I'm sure, well, I know because we've seen how many people have already signed up for this thing. Looking forward to seeing all the new folks too. So again, Blister Summit, you can find more information about that in the show notes to this episode, and we will also have a link to our Getting Here guide to Gunnison and Crested Butte. Lots of great information there, including up-to-date flight information for flying into the Gunnison Airport. So check it out. Today's episode is presented by Avocado, makers of the Avocado Green Mattress, which has been my own personal mattress for a number of months now. It is also the highest rated mattress of any category on Consumer Reports. So there's that. And as we like to say, it's not just that this is an exceptionally high performance mattress. Avocado is doing a number of very, very impressive things in terms of sustainability, both in terms of how they're manufacturing their products and just how they are operating as a company. So go to avocadogreenmattress.com to either check out the products or there is a ton of good reading about the company's sustainability initiatives. Also, I will say I felt extremely grateful for my avocado green mattress recently because this last week I went to see a very, very good friend of mine in Aspen and I slept on his floor and turns out I didn't sleep all that great. Anyway, shout out to Mark. It was great hanging out. But yeah, avocado green mattress, absolutely more comfortable than sleeping on a floor. Also, 
We've been doing this thing called Jonathan's Sleep Experiment, and I have added some more stuff in there. It's, again, some of the things that I'm currently doing to try to get better at this sleep thing and talking about some of the products that we're using and some of the things I've been reading. And there are some updates on a number of those fronts in that article. So you can check that out, too, again, in the show notes of this episode, Jonathan's Sleep Experiment. So lots of good stuff for you to check out. Lots of cool things going on. But now let's review the news with Cody Townsend. Here we go. Well, hey, what's up, Mr. Dad Brain? <laughs> I, I don't know because Dad Brain is currently completely has my brain twisted and I would like take like 30 minutes to do basic chores because yeah um the one thing i've learned is now i I don't get why parents don't look at look down upon people without kids more often because like i've started to learn that it's like this feeling of like if people say yeah i've been really busy i'm just super slammed and you're like yeah you wait till you throw a kid into that schedule because it is insane. So, uh, yeah, just barely sleeping, keeping Indy alive. And all things are good, though. Like I keep saying, it is pretty, pretty special. But damn, it's hard. We were talking and you were saying like, I was like, how you doing? And you're like, not that great. You're like, I was trying to put the groceries away the other day. And it took <laughs> me like 30 minutes. And I was like putting the milk in the pantry And I confess when you said that, I was like, I do that sometimes, but I don't have any kids. So that, that, is that bad? Uh, No, because I used to do that too. But now it's just like this, like, you're like, oh, and not having one brain fart. It's like your whole day is brain farts. You're just like kind of constantly over and over making brain farts because you're working on three to five hours of sleep and taking care of a baby and juggling all kinds of things. It's like, you know, at any one moment, you're like in the middle of something, you have to drop everything to like take care of this kid. And then you're like, wait, where was I? What do I have to do? So yeah, it's been, been, yeah, it's going. (laughs) You know, a lot of friends in my life are having kids and I, my new line is, has been like all parents are heroes I mean, maybe we should adjust that. Like, all even mediocre parents are heroes, right? Like, if you're a bad parent, that's like, you're really messing up somebody's life and that's a terrible, terrible thing to be. So, I'm not sure I want to grant you hero status just by virtue of having a kid. But if you're even like a C-minus parent, I think you're in hero status. I kind of agree with you now, mainly because quite often, like through this whole process and you're like, how, how do you do this? How do you work for two to three months with almost no sleep? And like, Elise and I would constantly just reference, you're like, there's so many idiots out there that do this and do it decently well. And yeah, maybe it's like later in life, they didn't raise them correctly. But like these three months where all you're doing is feeding them and changing their diaper and trying to get them to sleep in like 
they can do that, you're like, well, then I can do it. And it definitely gets you through just thinking about that. Um, and the other thing is too, yeah, like I've realized there's this like why other parents talk about their kids so much is because you, you, you're like, you're in this special club. Like we've all gone through it. You know, it's kind of like, I feel like it's like when you go on an expedition and you come back from with your partners, like super bonded because of the fact that you went through tra- uh, like a lot of troubles, hardship, um, you know, fear or all these kind of emotions. You you feel bond. And then like when you have a kid, you kind of end up going through the same thing. You can bond on the fact that like, oh, yeah, those first three months, they are brutal. But like, how special is this when they start to smile at you for the first time? And you're like, yeah, it's incredible. So um, so I get it. And I do think like, man, like it is really hard having kids. It feels like a ton of friends are having kids, but it also feels like I had so many of my friends don't even seem like they're going to ever have kids. I feel like there's this like shift too, where less and less people are having kids. I mean, it's, it's hard. It's not easy to balance, uh, you know, a career paying your rent and then throwing a, a, a baby into the mix. Yeah. It seems right. I just view babies as living creatures that are trying to kill themselves every second of the day. Yeah. And your job, it's like a, it's like a really horrible video game. Like your job is to prevent that from happening. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good way to do it. Um, he hasn't quite got to that stage yet, but it's like, I bet as soon as he rolls, rolls over and then like, you know, he can roll over and then all of a sudden you like set him down and he's under the coffee table, like <laughs> two minutes later. And you're like, where the hell did he go? Like those kind of things. Yeah. It's going to start to get that fear based up inside. Yeah. Um, I feel like I'm going to be, it's going to be really interesting being like a risk taker for a, for a profession. And then all of a sudden being like super cautious with this kid and like, how's it going to be when my kid for the first time wants to jump off a cliff on skis or I don't know, he crashes on his bike and it's going to be, it's going to be an interesting experience. I actually really, really look forward to that. I keep thinking about like, oh man, just like when he, when he gets older and all the things you can do and teach him, that's what I'm really looking forward to. Us too, Cody. Us too. All right. We were going to take a break from NFL news this week just to give, you know, some folks just I feel like I feel like our listeners have deserved they've earned a break maybe. But let's do this one quick. Sorry. We really weren't going to do this, but then we were sent an article that there is a bit of crossover here. NFL meets the ski world, kind of. So don't don't blame us. This one's not our fault. Apparently, Surefoot just made custom insoles for the football cleats of all San Francisco 49er players, your squad. And I thought, that's interesting. And then I thought... Is this going to be a way to like Trojan horse like NFL football players into skiing? And then I thought probably not. But anyway, what are your thoughts on this? Did you know this was happening? Well, first, I want to know what week they started doing this in because they've been on a three game (laughs) winning streak. So I'm like, did did they do this three weeks ago? Because then good on you, Surefoot. Everyone's looking fast and strong. Um, And the the second part is like, yeah, it's been a secret dream of mine to try and get some 49ers to go skiing with me for probably my whole life um they're like frequently up in tahoe both as a team you know you see him do some like bachelor party style stuff or just like groups up here um 
you know, I was talking enough Niners to know that there's like Joe Staley has a place up here. He's a retired, uh, pretty much Hall of Fame tackle that played for them forever. And, uh, and I'm like, come on, one day, because I know current players, most of them aren't going to go skiing because it's probably explicitly forbidden in their contracts. Um, but I do know there's these like, you know, guys like Drew Bledsoe. He is like a diehard skier. He lives in Bend, Oregon these days and runs a winery and skis uh, Mount Bachelor all the time. We've all seen the infamous video of Tom Brady skiing at, at Big Sky, or actually, what, not Big Sky, but uh, Yellowstone Club. Yellowstone. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, one day, one day I get to per- fulfill my dream. Maybe, I don't know, maybe I got to start working with Surefoot to get the like the little in there. <laughs> we have weird, similar dreams on this front. We just want to ski with some NFL people. Is that so? Is that so wrong? I just, I want to talk football with them. I want to hear their insights and and I'll show them around and try not to blow their ACLs. Right, exactly. So. Anyway, apologies, apologies. Hey, that had, that had a tie-in. That was at least not just talking about, about games. I had a tie-in to the outdoor news. So uh, yeah, I, I, I think it was worthwhile. Okay. Where do you want to go next? I mean, probably the, the biggest topic right now is how shitty the snow year is. Um, how there's pretty much nothing in North America. I mean, we've seen a couple East Coast resorts, um, some up in Canada, but even Canada is suffering. Like, although they've been getting precipitation, we've obviously seen, everyone's seen the insane floods they've been going through and the wildly fluctuating temperatures and rain to the top. Um, the Alpine has been getting caked and then it'll rain the next day. Um, but they're like lucky compared to everything else. Um, I mean, I was looking up these, uh, the Snowtel, uh, current snow water equivalent percentage of normal for the whole West. And it's just like all red, all under 50%. I mean, we see like, it, like places in Utah in the thirties, uh, Colorado's kind of in the fifties. Um, Oregon is all in the twenties. Washington's in the 30% of normal. Like it's so far been really really bad and it's kind of scary thinking that it's december and most of western north america still doesn't have snow yes and there's no yes but yeah there's a i don't know how to transition this from maybe it is a yes but first of all our wonderful friend slash total jerk paul forward just keeps sending video from girdwood where he's like I just skied waist deep pow again today. Like not joking. So we love you, Paul, but you can stop sending the photos and videos now. That's why like, why do you think I've gone up to Alaska so often during the holidays lately? It's like, it's so high and dry and you're just seeing reports up there and we're like, cool, let's go visit our family up there for the holidays so we can get some skiing. And I just keep doing it year to year. We're not going to do it this year with, with kid in tow, but I mean, yeah, they're, they've been, doing really well they always feel like they're doing pretty well i mean maybe that's maybe that's the the positive upside of drinking shitty jura coffee (laughs) wow (laughs) snuck that shot back in okay i have to say though personally i i think more and more each year i just really appreciate early season groomers it feels like it's like wading in it's like nice easing wading into a lovely lake. And you it's like, oh, yeah, we're just chill. 
You know, like we don't have to go get into gnarly stuff right now. Like, let's remember how to carve turns and have fun on groomers. And uh, that's what we've been doing. And honestly, it's been delightful. And it's like, get your get your sea legs back type of thing. That's what we've been doing here. And it is like, it is a little alarming. It's like, wow, this feels like perfect spring skiing. You know, like groomers are in perfect shape and are like soft and, you know, it's sunny and that's delightful, but it is a little bit like this feels like it's happening at the wrong time of year right now. Yeah. But I mean, the, it, you guys feel lucky that you have just some groomers to go lap. I think a lot of places don't. I mean, we Palisades opened, you know, like a month ago now, and then it pretty much everything is melted and we haven't had any measurable precipitation yet. So, I mean, yeah, like even having just a couple groomers to go lap would be really fun right now. So, um, but on, you know, besides the negative news, uh, let's talk about some positive news. And we talk about media quite often, but I actually wanted to get in a little discussion of ski media in honor of, uh, I think, just one of the absolute most amazing edits of all time uh, came out. Marcus Edits edit called Ultimate Run, which was a two-year project for him to put together um, a nine-minute edit of kind of what looks and edited like to be one single line starting in the top top of the high alps and going all the way back into town into the low valley and to me it was one of the single most amazing jaw-dropping edits i've ever seen so i wanted to get into what is our top five ski edits of all time um, and this isn't ski movies. Um, and, you know, a lot of things are going to be kind of out of this category, just kind of like single person edits that were very online specific. Um, one of these segments is a little, you know, I'd say it was in a movie and it was just thrown online, but um, in my top five. So I want to go through our top five list because I, uh, yeah, it kind of made me think about this. I had some of these debates online with other people, like what is the, the, top five edits of all time. So start at number five. What do you got? Well, I think what I want to do here is have you go first and then I'll, and then I'll go. And, and this was an interesting thing because we set this up in a Google doc. We didn't go through and define like, what are the parameters on this? And so I think it's going to be more interesting if you kind of give your top five and then I'll talk a little bit about how I set mine up. Okay. So yeah, what what did you go with for five? Uh, for five, I went with Sammy Carlson's Overtime. Um, it doesn't have necessarily the views that a lot of these other videos do. It doesn't have maybe the worldwide global impact of reaching out beyond the ski industry, but I just love that edit. I thought the music was amazing. I thought the editing by CK9 and the, the cinematography was amazing. Sammy's just on top of his game and what he does and pillows and kind of mini golf terrain in the BC backcountry is just unbelievable. And it was just one of those edits where I just kept coming back to watching it almost to get pumped up to go skiing. I just, I I think it was his best edit that he's ever put out. Um, he's, I think got another one releasing here pretty soon. Um, and just in terms of like core ski industry, it was just, I think everyone was blown away by, by what Sammy did in that edit. Where do you go to next up the list? Four. Uh, the next one, uh, I've got one of these days, number one. So, Candide. I mean, 
Candide's been taking the, the the internet by storm every time he releases something. I love the fact that he like goes dead quiet for like a year and then just puts one thing out and it gets like 10 million views and just goes completely bonkers. Puts one thing out on Instagram every six months and it gets goes bonkers. And one of these days was that, you know, it was kind of where it was his first edit that he was doing just kind of like ski resort ripping around kind of with your buddies and just sending it off side hits and sculpted terrain um, on La, La Clusa um, in the French Alps. And it obviously was just kind of mind blowing for the time. Um, then JP street skiing segment for number three is me. So obviously this movie was pulled from, or the segment was pulled from the movie all I can. And, uh, but it also, I don't know, it just has a very, internet appeal and it was just so powerful for a time and what i love about it is like simple it's just like skiing through the streets and doing 360s and backflips but it was shot super well the music is amazing and it really just i think it kind of put a stamp on the almost the finality of jp's career you know he was moving into more and more ski mountaineering but this was like jp's swan song in many ways of like his legacy um what he did in skiing and then just kind of putting this edit out there was something so unique at the time that it was just yeah it was amazing um number two for me uh it's one of those days too which is uh you know candied again just keeps stealing it by storm but it was just it was like number one but with more production value um more planning you could tell wasn't just like straight up like you could tell they they were like oh my god this concept is doing really well let's work on this and um I, although it's called one of these days this was definitely shot over the course of a year and then my favorite of it i think is hands down the best ski edit of all time was marcus edwards ultimate run i think the combination of editing style the you know takes influence from one of these days um you know just kind of going down one ski area but to me like what it showed was like the the progression and what he was doing on skis was unbelievable and stuff that's never been done before whereas like candide to me like it was mind-blowing but he was doing pretty simple tricks obviously in the most amazing style but like double backflips cork sevens all that kind of basic stuff whereas like marcus was going off a glacier and doing nose butter switch fives and switched nine or and you know doing nines off stuff and switch nines and you're like this is like the highest level of big mountain skiing in this edit and then he goes into park and does incredible stuff in the park and then into kind of the mini golf down low um to the urban stuff like all in all like to me it was like the synopsis of what could be categorized as like I'm the best skier in the world right now. Marcus would never say that. He's one of the most humble, funny, fun-loving guys. I've been lucky enough to ski with him for a few years and um, was kind of one of his early champions to, to MSP being like, dude, this kid rips. Um, so a big fan of him. But to me, I was just like, that was like the top. And could be recency bias. It could be, you know, these kind of things where you're like, well, this will it stand the test of time like one of these days? It might. Uh, it might not. But for me, like what it was, I was like, that was the best edit I've ever seen. So, yeah, your top five. So what I'll do is you went from bottom up five to yep. one. I'm going to go one down okay. the list. And again, we had not discussed this. And I 
I was latching on a bit to the like one run focused segment, right? And gotcha. then it was like, okay, well, so this wasn't supposed to be pulled from a film like JPL Claire's segment. I do feel like you are being a bit disrespectful to European Jesus, aka Candide Tovex. So I am going to worry a little bit more here about recency bias because, again, it's Jesus. So my number one, and I watched I watched all the segments again the other day that you had put out, and then I was going back through some of my own and mostly was like, man, there is other stuff I should be doing right now than this, but it was a fun, it was a fun like hour and a half to two hours. My personal number one of all time, Candide's one of those days two. Mm-hmm. Which I had higher rank than one as well. Then I went, actually, I had a tie. I tied number one, one of those, one of those days two and one of those days three. Mm-hmm. I think they are equally like when you watched those the first time, it was kind of mind melting, mm-hmm. you know? And it just, to me, that is like that set a bar and everything. It's like, yeah, that set a bar and everything that comes after is coming after it. So I've got a tie for first, actually. One of those days, two, and one of those days, three. So then my third place is Marcus's ultimate run. And so these were the debates I was getting on in line. We were going back and forth about this. And my primary argument for why I thought ultimate run was better goes down to the progression of the the actual tricks and the 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 skiing within it. Like one of these days, one, two, three, they're mind blowing. And they were just like, yeah, everyone's jaws hit the floor. But like when it came to the actual tricks, what was done being done within that wasn't necessarily pushing the sport. It pushed the sport and progressed the sport, in my opinion, in a way where we're seeing more and more uh, res- edits at the resort, more skiing like that, you know, just like tricking off everything in sight uh, um, when it's chopped up, not just perfect pal. But to me, like the ultimate run, like some of the stuff he did in the big mountain section, especially the top, you're like, that is what a lot of big mountain skiers have been trying to do for 10 years and you just finally did it. So to me, that's where I like put it up there because I was like, you progressed the actual uh, performance of the sport in that edit. Um, whereas with, you know, I think culturally Candide progressed skiing with those edits, but it wasn't quite as like, no one's ever done that trick before. No one's ever skied a line quite like that before. So that's why I had it higher. All right. This, you know, you're entitled to your opinions, Cody. My opinions. and look, I mean, we're barely disagreeing here. I've, yeah. I'm saying one of those days two and three are, I'm putting those tied for best ever and then ultimate run. And I, and you know, for a lot of the reasons that you're pointing out. So it's like, we both have Candide and Marcus as the all timers on these, on these edits. So just to round out my list, number four for me, I'm going one of those days one because Just seeing that again for the first time, Candide just utterly mobbing 
just mobbing. Oh, yeah. I, that just still, and again, I watched it again the other day and I'm like, man, this still just holds up for me in terms of the kind of exhilaration, the like, what the hell, all of it. Like, it still holds up. And that came out in 2013. For fifth, showing, I think, proper respect, I went with Candide's Audi Quattro commercial. <laughs> <laughs> the ballad, yeah. The, what, like skiing on dry land. Yeah, now yep. you, I can see who you're a fan of. Uh, I can yep. see who you're a fan of. So, and uh, this is, again, I'll, I'll keep, I'm going to keep pushing back a little bit. But like one of the things is, as a professional skier, done it my whole life, been on front of the camera. One of the things that is unbelievable about Marcus's that then when you compare it to Candide's at it kind of takes away from it is most of this shit that Marcus was doing was first hit. There's not a track on there. Nothing is harder in skiing than doing it first hit and landing the way he did. With Candide's, that's, you know, a, a run that's being skied over and over. You can hit that jump. 20 times over, work your way up the ladder to get the trick you want to do. That is, it is a huge, huge difference. Like every professional skier respects first hit compared to second hit every single time. Like you see a track in it, you're like, if, you know, you see an edit and someone hits the same backcountry hit again, there's a track in it, they do something amazing. You're like, yeah, it's amazing. You're like, there's always going to be a little asterisk that, hey, it wasn't first hit. Um, so that's again, too, why I like... I look at the ultimate run. I'm like, dude, no one like you're doing all this shit that was mind blowing and you're doing it first hit. Um, I, you know, I keep likening it to as well. Like what goes into making these films? Like knowing that Marcus filmed a lot of that high Alpine stuff in Switzerland um, in like June um, when you get to ski a lot of that stuff on the glaciated train and all those ice lines. And imagine like, I, I liken it to being like, Imagine being you're a Super Bowl quarterback and you're in the Super Bowl, you're you're getting ready to put this to, to, to go win the Super Bowl, but they have you in a dark locker room and they're like, we don't know when it's going to start, but it could be in an hour, it could be next week, but you're just going to stay here and then we'll call you in and then you're on the one yard line, you go drive 99 yards to win the Super Bowl. That's kind of the same pressure that it's like when you're filming these things. Like you're sitting in the valley with no skiing for weeks on end. And then you jump in a helicopter, fly to the top. And they're like, okay, first hit, go do a switch cork nine off this. Um, oh yeah. You haven't skied in weeks and you've been sitting in the rain for a week. Now go do the, one of the gnarliest things ever done on skis. Again, that factors into why I look at the ultimate run as just mind blowing because just knowing some of these behind the scenes, the pressures that go into it. I know Marcus talking to him, like he, he had a lot of pressure on him for this edit. Um, I mean, he put two years of, of work into this and so. Again, maybe it's a little because it's a so inside baseball and knowing the intricate details of filming and big mountain skiing. That's, again, why I just put it up a little bit higher. No, I, I, I mean, I think it's a, a welcome perspective on all of this. I wanted to add a couple honorable mentions. I gave my top five, but in sixth place, since you cheated with JP's segment, which was taken from a film, this just as an edit that I just personally love so much Hoji's pillow line segment from Attack of La Nina, mm -hmm. which you can kind of see as a athlete said it, you mm -hmm. know, matched it, kind of pulled that and that's out there. Done to the song, How You Like Me Now by The Heavy, which is 
just this perfect blend of chocolate meets peanut butter type of thing going on. Like Hoji just flashing pillow lines to that song. It's still for me, that's like a personal, that's a personal favorite. And then I wanted to give a shout out. And this is where particularly if we go to like the one run, mm-hmm. right? Like emphasis on one run. Bobby Brown's edit top to bottom that he shot at Mammoth. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still like, go watch it again. And it's just like what he's just linking up and linking up and the whole vibe to it. Um, it felt wrong to me to have an edit list like this with a bit of a one run focus and and not give a shout out to Bobby um, for, for that one. Yeah. No, there's so many that I've like, and if you start to cheat a little bit and so many little segments that I'm put out online that I'm like, oh my God, yeah, Hoji stuff, Atma stuff. There's so many like amazing so edits. Many. And it, but I mean, if like Kai Peterson put any one of his segments in from his last movie, Numinous, and put it out online, it could be up there as well. So uh yeah, no, it's really uh I mean I tried to keep it. I did cheat once with JPs and uh but but yeah. Um it's it's funny. It's a it's a good debate. Yeah, it's fun. And 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 shout out to everybody we just mentioned and and we could we could just keep this going for so long with just so many incredible segments out there. Um, so shout out to the filmmakers and the athletes who are are putting this stuff out. It's it is all amazing and there is so much of it. Like we have so many people operating at such a high level. What a time to be alive. Definitely. Well, um, end of that debate and go back into like some of our news stories. Let's see what we got next was uh, this was a pretty funny article that's been kind of making the rounds. Um, so this was on Alaska Public Media, um, PBS NPR, and it was uh, the headline was failed Denali summit and serious accident lead to false report charges for Utah doctor. Um, and the, the whole story about this was uh, essentially this doctor long story short him and his partner were doing really dumb stuff they separated they weren't quite fit enough to make their attempt what it all led down to is this doctor falsifying frostbite claims to get a helicopter rescue off the off the not the summit of Denali but i think from about 17 or 18,000 feet um cuz he didn't want to hike down anymore and uh what came to it is they're actually charging him um federal charges against him for making a violating a lawful order and making a false report um pretty interesting and uh this was on the heels of there is this blog post which i love following it but uh Denali dispatches. So Denali National Park, uh, during the climbing season, they put up like these blog posts of what's going on in the mountain, how many people are summiting, weather and all these things. And there was this really interesting article called Troubling Trends. And this was from May 27th of 2021. And they were kind of in a, you know, in a vague way identifying this incident. But I also really laughed at it because I thought were they like talking to me directly at one point? And this may be egocentric, but there is this uh, this line and it says, we've also seen an increase of skiers aspiring for highly coveted lines off the summit, such as Mesner. <laughs> I was like, uh, are you talking because of this project? But uh, uh, I think that's probably just me reading into it too much, but pretty interesting because you counter like, 
American rescue versus European rescue. And in Europe, pretty much wherever you're at, you have a you have an accident, um, you have something going on, you're going to get picked off by a helicopter instantaneously. Whereas in America, helicopter rescues are far less frequent. And then as we're seeing now, could be even charged with a crime if you're slightly falsifying your report that you need to be evacuated. So kind of kind of a, a warning, I think, uh, out to Denali climbers, like be prepared to get off the mountain and you have to be prepared for self-rescue. Like we're not here just to come pick you up if you're not feeling well. Like you, it has to be serious life-threatening event that we're going to come pick you up. So I'm, I'm pretty surprised there's actually federal charges being levied against this guy. We talk so frequently on this, and I guess we will just continue to, about education, education, education. And we'll have links to that to that blog, Troubling Trends, so people can and should read it for themselves. But yeah, just clarifying, like if you want to get up here, cool, but um don't count on don't count on us. We're not here to like be the easy bailout. I, I thought it all seemed like really appropriate. And, and, you know, there's a line in in the blog post that says, we have seen a disturbing amount of overconfidence paired with inexperience in the Alaska range. And then they kind of go on from there and, and it's like, yep, these are good reminders. And people ought to be asking themselves, like, are we actually prepared for this? And and um, it's, a, it's a really good read. Definitely. It's, uh, it's interesting because Denali is like, besides Rainier, it's... The only other mountain I've been on that has like infrastructure and park staff on the mountain with you, you know, every camp you go to, there's a tent with rangers and they're always rotating them. And then when you get to the advanced base camp of 14, there's like a permanent ranger station, not permanent, but permanent for the climbing season. Um and it's always staffed and they have weather reports and whatnot. So it feels like there's the most infrastructure. But what's really interesting about uh, North American climbing versus European climbing is that like there that's the only infrastructure there is and that's the most there is like usually most climbing in North America is very wild without any sort of support um, so I do think just having that support gives people a false sense of confidence obviously you know I was saying pointing the people wanting to ski the Mesner myself, but like we've just seen the rise of the seven summits in general uh, when I was on that mountain the amount of people there that you could tell were climbing the mountain just so they could go back to work and tell people they climbed Denali. It, it was like disturbing. Like I would say your average backcountry user has more experience than the people, than half the people climbing Denali, which is incredibly hard. People look at these mountains and look at like uh, the infrastructure, the fact that tons of people do it. And they're like, Oh, I can do that. And you know, don't step foot on any other mountain, like people that can barely put crampons on that don't know how to tie into a rope or climbing one of the most difficult mountains in North America. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a weird thing to me. Like I, I get why people want to do this, but you're like, don't you want to, I, I personally would rather do it unguided and build up the experience to figure it out for myself than just like pay a bunch of money and get hauled up the mountain. And it seems like a lot of people, would rather just do that just so they can put it on their their tech list. Want to talk about outer space? 
Yeah, we do talk about space a lot. Um, this next one was an article from uh, Gizmodos. And this article was uh, referencing everyone's favorite billionaire, Jeff Bezos. And the title on Gizmo- Gizmodo was Future Humans Will Visit the Earth the Way You Visit Yellowstone. And this is a quote from a conference and an event that he had in the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. with NASA Administrator Bill Nelson and others talking about space policy. And he goes on to talk about how he envisions up to a trillion people living in space colonies and pretty much abandoning Earth and using Earth um, to only be a place like a national park that you go visit, which my summation of all this is... Yeah, fuck that. Like, what the Like, this is what you've been trying to do? Like, with your jumping into space with your buddies and whatnot? Like, where do we get a vote in this? Because I'd rather work taking your billions and trillions of dollars that you're going to have, put it into saving this planet and being able to live on it. Because so far, you can't ski in a spaceship and uh, you can ski on on planet Earth. So, like, what the hell, dude? Yeah. And I think it does bring up that question, right? Of, wait, shouldn't we be more focused on, you know, fixing issues to the best of our ability here versus assuming the, the, the game is over. So, you know, we're too late. And so we better just start, you know, looking to colonize other planets, that kind of a thing. And I, I, I think that will continue to be a debate that's raging, but does it seem right to you that that Bezos maybe has already decided it's a settled issue? Like we 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 aren't sort of going to make we're beyond the point to where we can sort of fix this planet. And so it's just default we have to be looking to the next. Well, and that's the scary part is like is he in rooms with the leading scientists, billionaires, and politicians on the planet, and this is their train of thought? Do they know something we don't know? Because a lot of science says it isn't too late. And, you know, even if it is too late for snow, like, it's going to be miserable, um, but humanity will survive through this. And this is what's kind of scary about this is, like, yeah, does he know something we don't know? And two... A man with this much power, influence, and wealth can make this happen without our individual citizens' vote. Because I bet most citizens would say, like, yeah, I'd rather live here and deal with it. Um, it that's what's it's what's just so weird about what's going on right now. And, you know, I keep I kind of keep referencing and reading articles about the Gilded Age, um, which is a period of 1870 to around 1920 in America. Um, the rapid like accumulation of wealth by a few people and uh you know there's rising wages in that time and better off but there was also like a massive spread in inequality and they're like are we is this like a new gilded age and these titans of industry the new uh carnegies and rockefellers are bezos and musk and they're deciding that like now we're going to space and humanity's coming with us like this is it's kind of it's weird and you just don't you you feel like you have no say in this um and are is there a conversation happening above us that we don't know about i'm not sure i have anything much else to add on this no there's not much to add other than i bet most of our listeners will be saying the same thing like yeah fuck that like let's work on here (laughs) 
Where to next? Next one. Uh, this was a really interesting article, and this brings up a lot of debate. And this was on Explorer's Web. Um, the headline was, In Praise of Anonymity, Publicizing a Beautiful Place Can Lead to Ruin. Um, and this was done by Pat Morrow, and it was about, he's a photographer, and he was talking about, you know, his career as a photographer and photojournalist and going around the world and publicizing kind of adventure travel, beautiful places. Um, and his central thesis was, it's not helped. It's actually ruined these places. And this is, you know, by publicizing them, we essentially have uh, shown people these places and now they want to go there and see it for themselves and take their own picture. And just those amount of people there are destroying it. And he goes into talking about India and Ladakh and, you know, some of the the garbage he sees and, you know, the infrastructure built in these wild places because of, you know, essentially adventure tourism or whatever you want to call it. Um, and says that, yeah, and his whole career didn't work. He thought the central thesis of showing these places will make people want to protect them is wrong. Um, and, you know, like I read it and I, I would say I was, of course, instinctively and reflexively defensive because kind of what I do. It's kind of like a central thesis of my job. And, but he's got some truth to it. And I don't know, I got some other little data that maybe push back on it. But what is, what are your thoughts on it? How about I just sound like a broken drum and say education, right? Because anybody who wants to plant the flag entirely on one side of the spectrum, like no, 100% this is a positive or no, this is 100% a negative. It's like, yep, rarely does the world work out quite so neatly. And I maintain that this will continue to be an incredibly important part of sort of, let's call it maybe like this entire outdoor industry. And I'm encompassing like people going anywhere to check out pretty places or you know, less populated places that we will have to continue to do a better and better job of education. Some of that will be led by the places themselves. And some of this will be an increasing onus on individuals to understand the area that they are thinking of going to. And how to do that, like what time of year, like so that we're not overcrowding places, right? I I think this just gets more complex. And I think what I believe actually is that those of us in the sort of outdoor community, and I hope that's a really broad tent with more and more people coming under that, you know, umbrella or into that tent, that it just becomes a bigger part of if we're thinking of traveling anywhere, we are taking into account impacts or looking at like, oh, wow, these are incredibly busy times of year to go there. Let's maybe try to not go during those peak times. So I, I don't know. That's kind of my my normal dance move here, I guess. But like, I think the onus will continue to increase in terms of the amount of education that will be sort of expected and hopefully part of this outdoor culture before going to a place. Does that seem incredibly naive to you? No, I mean, I think that, that it, yeah, that's always the the smart answer is to work on education because like, I don't think the, 
he is entirely true, nor do I think the opposite is entirely true. Um, because, you know, I like started looking up some, some data on, you know, I was like, well, what has been the increase in wildland conservation or donation to charities? And, you know, I saw some data that said that in 2017, charities that focus on environment animals saw an increase of 7.2% to $11 billion. Land and ocean protection um, uh, or conservation has increased 42% in the last decade. Huge wins like Bristol Bay conservation, the fight against a pebble mine, was won by primarily fishermen and outdoorsmen leading the charge. Also, uh, uh, indigenous tribes in the area. 2010 to 18, the WWF, the World Wildlife Fund, saw their donation grow from 224 million to 336 million. So we're seeing like, this increased awareness of the outdoors is increasing the amount of giving and conservation that is happening out there. So that's where I push back quite, quite often of like, oh, it's crowded. It's more crowded. Like we talked about this in the National Park once this, this summer is like, yeah, but the road and the parking lot's more crowded. But like when I'm in Glacier National Park and hearing about like, yeah, the going to the sun road is like takes three hours to drive. You're like, well, I can walk up Stimson and not see a soul. So like, are we worried about the actual land and the wildlife or the the human side of development that we developed within these wildlands? And then we're trashing that little tiny half a percentile place of it. So that's where I push back on this increasingly because like we are seeing increases in conservation. We're increasing uh, donations to conservation funds and more awareness is bringing better impacts. And I think it's a little myopic and narrow viewed to look at just like one little spot and be like, yeah, because X has more trash on it, then it's all going bad. So Again, that's where I'll push back that like, no, there is some benefits to this increased awareness of of the outdoors and wildlife and uh, wild lands and how important they are. Where to next? This is probably, I think, going to be, besides our debate on uh, Ski Movie Edit, it's kind of my most fun topic to, to debate about. And um, it's from the Wild Snow blog. And it was, uh, let me pull up, the, the style skiing and ski mountaineering. And this whole thing, this article in this blog post, um, essentially just had to do with What's the definition of ski mountaineering? Um, this was done by Jason Albert. Uh, Albert, pardon me. And uh, it kind of gives what I think is the best definition of ski mountaineering yet, because I look uh, at a lot of people that call themselves ski mountaineers and look at the term ski mountaineering and think it's been used incorrectly for quite a long time. Um, so this uh, and this article goes through that debate. And I thought it was a really well done article of going through like, what is ski mountaineering? So before I get into my definition, what's your definition of ski mountaineering? Well, Cody, before I answer this, I want to take a second to welcome Indy to his first podcast. We uh, we just had a little, we took a little break here. <laughs> Indy, Cody is now, I guess we call this burping Indy. What, is this what we're doing here? Burping Indy. He just got fed. Elise has to run right now. So I'm getting, I'm on dad solo dad duty for the next hour. So I got to wrap this podcast up with. You might hear some burps. You might hear some little coos, but just no, <laughs> just my baby. Do we know what is the youngest 
human being to ever be on a podcast? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe if we can hear him, then he might take the cake. Okay. I don't know. We might have a thing going here. First, uh, is this constitute a first descent? <laughs> first first descent <laughs> of a pod. I mean, we're, yeah. yeah, we. it's going to be a lot. He might, he, like I said, I kind of want to get him on his first 50 classic this year. Just put him in my, put him in my backpack or something like that. And, you know, be like, cool. First baby descent of a 50, uh, of a 50 classic. <laughs> well, anyway, welcome Indy and feel free to make all the noise you, you want. That'll be just like bonus material. Also feel free to throw up on your father. Yes. Um, Cause that's that. just, that's, that's just good content. Okay. Listen, in answer to the question, here's my honest answer. And I mean this with all due respect. I don't really care about the definition of ski mountaineering. Like I, like people go out, do your thing in the mountains, do it safely, do it, you know, understand the risks you're taking all that kind of thing. So I'm going to be the voice of, on the side of people who are just like, whatever that said, I'm definitely not interested in people going out to do stuff so that they can now claim like, yeah, bro, like I ski mo or I'm a ski mountaineer or whatever. Like, again, I still don't care. Like go out, have a good time, understand the risks you're taking, have a great day out there. That's kind of my jam. So I'm going to represent whoever else kind of is in that camp on this. That said, I'm very interested to hear your take because you are more a part of that community of people that's like, we're doing things in the mountain. You get criticized sometimes for what you're doing, you know, and um, I think you operate more in the world of people where these definitions do kind of have meaning. And I understand that. So the floor is uh, the floor is back to being yours. Yeah, I mean, well, my first take is that like I actually hate the subgenre definitions of skiing. I wish we could just call it all skiing, but it doesn't quite work. Um, and even I find challenge myself when people are like, "Oh, what kind of ski are you?" and you kind of have to describe yourself and you start to use these terms. Um, you know, I I remember one of my least favorite articles of all time was on powdermagazine.com one day and it was by Peter I don't I forget it how to say his last name. And it was like, he tried to define the only definition of skiing is hiking up under your own power and skiing back down is called skiing and everything else should have it. And I, he went on to shit on every kind of form of skiing other than his preferred form, which was backcountry and human powered skiing. Um, and I remember just like, dude, whatever. But so to me, I've always been reflexively like against these definitions, but I've been in my own career forced to define what I do. You know, you're asked, what kind of skier are you? Like, I'm a free ride, a big mountain, uh, the dreaded extreme skier. And so as I like move into this new portion of my career, you're like, well, what would you describe yourself? You're like, well, a ski mountaineer. But like nobody knows what a ski mountaineer actually does. And defining it has been very loose. Like at what point does backcountry skiing turn into ski mountaineering? And quite often you see like I think it's most dealt with and most people define ski mountaineering when all of a sudden you get like sharp pointy things on your feet and in your hands and use ropes. But this article it agrees with me. I don't think that's necessarily ski mountaineering. Um, just like, you know, like if you were to go ski on powder skis on groomers, are you powder skiing? The tools that you're using don't, shouldn't be the thing that defines it. So to me, like, you'd be like, if you have ice axes, it's not ski mountaineering, 
because you have ice axes. At ski mountaineering, to me, when you focus on the key word mountaineering, like what is mountaineering and then bringing skis along. And that's what Colin Haley goes into saying in here. And it was like the best definition of it. And he says, to me, it means skiing, but to the top or off the top of a significant mountain where backcountry skiing, I think of human power, no lifts, but not necessarily in alp- high alpine terrain. Ski mountaineering or ski alpinism means climbing a mountain with skis as your main tool, whether for the ascent or the descent or both. Um, and to me, like what it, like where he starts to point and goes with this is like, if you can decide so define your objective as a mountaineering goal, but then you brought skis along to get back down. And he further goes on to get down faster than if you were to down climb it. So do it with style. Then it's ski mountaineering. Um, to me, ski mountaineering, like summits matter. Um, it's you're going for a prominent peak. Like Many people try to climb Mount St. Elias. And then if I were to try to climb Mount St. Elias and ski off it, that's ski mountaineering. If I were to go ski the Y shoot in Little Codwood Canyon and use ropes and uh, anchors and maybe even more technical skills than I would on uh, something like Rainier, like that's going the Y shoot with ropes is not ski mountaineering. That's just backcountry skiing with technical tools. Uh, climbing Mount Rainier and skiing off it is actually ski mountaineering. It's maybe, you know, on the easier spectrum, but to me, that's where you have to focus on. Like ski mountaineering is very objective based, summit based, mountaineering based style of, of backcountry travel. And then you just bring skis with it. So I, I did like that article. It was the first article I've seen that really defines it well. Cause I think there's too many people that call backcountry skiing with ice axis ski mountaineering i would say like in the 50 project like the ski mountaineering objectives there's you know maybe five so far six like i think a lot of them are just back big backcountry ski objectives mount rainier mount st elias uh mount stimson might be ski mountaineering um but maybe even like university peak and skiing that eight thousand foot wall might not be ski mountaineering because you actually aren't going for the summit. You're just climbing up to ski a very good ski line, which at that point to me is backcountry skiing. So it's a blurry definition, but I like to focus on the mountaineering term. Can you say one more word about like, I mean, look, we spend a lot of time because it's fun thinking through definitions and different categories and where do separations kind of make sense and the rest. But do you see there being sort of like an importance of defining these terms? Like what's kind of at stake? I I don't see it. You know, like these are, it goes back to like a lot of my things about the mountains. It's like, there shouldn't be like hard, fast rules, just like there shouldn't be hard, fast definitions, but people are going to create rules. People are going to create ethics. People are going to create definitions, terms and whatnot. And so it's like, better to have a definition of it, but I'm also like not going to live and die by it. And then, you know, they're, you know, judging people be like, you're not a ski mountaineer. I'm a ski mountaineer. That's just like ego talking. So like, that's where it's like, I, yeah, you want to define it so that people use the term correctly. But at the same time, I like, I don't really care because like, if it really comes down to it, I, for my whole life want to just wrap up my life. in one definition is that I'm a skier. And yes, I did it in many different ways and different practices, but it all comes down to I skied 
and I like to ski back down things. I like to slide on snow on two sticks. So to me, it doesn't really matter. And I think we get too wrapped up in definitions and what counts and what doesn't count. If you skied 10 feet below the summit, does you, did you actually ski off the summit? That's the kind of stuff I don't like. And we've talked about it on this podcast. Um, there's people, I generally find it a more old school level of thinking that try to make these hard, fast rules for what counts. Granted, the thing is, if you're a professional, if you're doing things and claiming things, putting things out, then you're probably set to a different set of boundaries. Like myself, I probably have more scrutiny because of, you know, I'm trying to ski the 50 classic ski descents. And if I half-ass something, it shouldn't count. But that's because I've kind of publicly stated I'm trying to do this goal. And as much as I'm like, oh, I don't want definitions, you're like, well, my whole project and career is based on definition. So um, I should be held to a different standard than other people, but I don't want that standard to be held to normal people just going out for the fun of it. Is it time to talk about what we're reading and listening to and watching? Yeah, I guess so. Are we just back to NFL and succession? (laughs) (laughs) Well, no. First of all, major breakthrough. Breakthrough. Ladies and gentlemen... Ah, and Indy. My God, I never thought I'd see the day. But Cody Townsend actually finally started watching Friday Night Lights. We have not talked about this. I have specifically not asked you like what you've thought about this. So I'm coming in blind here. First of all, you came around so I can stop disparaging your name, you know, behind your back for this. Tell me, how far in are you on the series? How's it going? Am I about to hang up on you if you say mean things about the show? Where are we? Uh, We are one episode in, and I would say it was a good episode. I would say took a little bit, but when Jesse Plemons came on... um, When he, his character, Landry, uh, I kind of got in because I love that guy and he's always in good movies and he plays such a good character. He's such a good yeah. character actor. So kind of got in on that. So, um, but you know, the first episode, I was kind of like feeling, I was like, oh, this kind of feels sitcom in a certain way. Like not sitcom but just not like the prestige TV stuff. But then by the end, I was kind of like, oh, I can see where this is probably going to get going and be pretty good. Um, Obviously, you know, if you've watched this, I probably shouldn't worry about spoiler alerts because I'm like the last person to show this. But, you know, the star starting quarterback becomes paralyzed and, you know, that sets up what's probably going to be the rest of the show. Um, But so for the most part, I was like, ah, I'm into it. I wasn't like, oh my God, I got to watch the next episode, but I'm going to watch it. I will say my TV watching has actually gone up a lot because I'm currently taking the 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. shift for feeding Indy. And so I've just been staying up late and I literally put in headphones to link to the TV and just stare at the TV till 2 a.m. while feeding Indy and, and then uh, at least takes the other half of the night. So, so yeah, been, it's been been going up. But yeah, big breakthrough. Friday Night Lights. I did it. I did it, Jonathan. You proud of me? We're proud of you. Yeah. I am. I'm so, I'm so proud. And normally this has been for years, the line, and I'm sure I've told you the same thing. I was like, give it, you know, three episodes. Mm-hmm. And if after three episodes, you're like, this isn't really my jam. Okay. 
Like I can live with that. Which is what uh, I say for people with secession. You got to give it four episodes. Um, they really hit their stride by episode five. And yeah, it feels like a lot to, to get through it, but it's kind of true. And then you're going to be hooked. Anyway, Friday Night Lights, Cody, just open your heart. Just yes. open your heart and just invite the goodness that is Friday Night Lights into your life. All right. I did. I did. I'm opening. I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep watching. <laughs> keep, keep your heart open, Cody. You're next. Where do you want to go? Um, well, I just want to say is I haven't been reading much. Um, it's a lot harder to read books when you're tired all the time because then you just fall asleep. So, uh, yes, jumped into Friday Night Lights. Um, my wife has been really pushing me to watch The Crown. She's watched it. So I started watching that a little bit. Um, and then Narcos Mexico season three, because I'm a Narcos addict and Narcos is really good. And it's just, it's kind of, I find it really funny if you're watching these like gritty cartel, hyper violent things. And I've got a two month old on my lap feeding him while I'm watching <laughs> what the how the cartel is doing evil things it feels very funny but um this is my first time kind of feeling that so that's what i've been into narcos just feels like for guys it's just like i don't know it's like addictive tv for guys you know it's like just it's like gnarly stuff and crime and cartels and drugs and women and all that kind of stuff and yeah i bought in a long time ago and i'm i'm still in so narcos is fun well, I'll go to two things I've been reading. One, Rick Ridgway's book, A Life Lived Wild. And I had Rick on the podcast, I guess that's a couple episodes ago now. But um, just, I'm really, really, I really enjoyed the book. I really enjoyed learning more about Rick's life. Yeah, that's been a book that I've been giving to some friends and the rest. And so that's been a really really fun one. The other thing I've been reading is a book called Tinderbox by James Andrew Miller. And it's a history of HBO. Oh. Oh, the the Jim Miller, the oral history of yeah. it. I just listened to the Simmons pod with Jim Miller because he frequently does, comes on. We did the oral history of ESPN, oral history of uh, what other... Yeah, it sounded fascinating. He did oral history of Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Live, yeah. Yeah. I am just a sucker for this stuff, right? Kind of the origin stories of now established institutions. Yeah, so I'm I'm really enjoying this and you it's just so hilarious the many many times that HBO was just like just about to go out of existence and um you know, the the kind of hilarity slash incredible stress, I think, of any new endeavor or institution or company. You know, HBO is just kind of this thing that feels so cemented these days and learning more about the early days when it was like people were vehemently pushing to like kill it inside the company. So that's just been another kind of you know, fun side project to be learning more about. And uh, yeah, like the the birth of institutions and where they almost went off the cliff and what kept them from doing that. It's, um, I don't know, I'm a sucker for that stuff. Totally. I was actually talking to Elise about that. I'd be like, ah, oh, I think this would be such a fun read. And I'm like, it's not like a, 
I don't know, one of those reads where you're like, it feels like a guilty pleasure. It's kind of like Us Weekly, but for like people that like business and media and whatnot, I'm like, I really want to read this, but it feels like I'm like, I could read other stuff that's going to further my life. But I'm like, this feels like such cool stuff to like learn about like how Sopranos came to fruition and all the challenges that go into it. And uh, yeah, I've I've wanted to read pretty much every single one of his books because ESPN, SNL, HBO, fan of all those things. So like, how do they come to be um it's always kind of fascinating to me what it always fascinated about those stories too is that quite often you know we look at these juggernauts and you just look at them in awe and then you realize it's just like misstep over misstep and like smart people but like we all make mistakes and it kind of to me it almost gives you more hope you're like okay we can i can be a bumbling idiot and get through this in some sort of way just like they did and sure you have to have some good ideas and make the right decisions when it when it counts but like for the most part you're like yeah we're all gonna make mistakes and look hbo they fucked up a ton of time so you can do it too another thing that i watched actually this past week actually was also on hbo a documentary called dear rider do you know about this, Cody? No. Uh, oh, the Jake Burton one. Yeah, I have. I haven't watched that. Yeah, I'm. I'm really, really enjoying it. It just. It's. It's in a way very straightforward. It's laying out, you know, the the Jake Burton story. But what a fascinating story, right? I mean, just such a seminal figure in the history of snowboarding. Fascinating. I'm just learning a lot. Yeah, I think it's I think it's very well done. So that's been a fun one and I highly recommend it to anybody who is interested in snow sports. And again, if you never have skied or snowboarded a day in your life, there are maybe not that many occasions where we can point to a single person. And and Bert, Jake was always quick to say like I did not invent snowboarding, right? And and that's true. But man, he sure was at and near the origins and a central figure for so long in the history of that sport. And um, yeah, I'm just really enjoying the whole thing there. So Dear Rider, highly recommended. Oh, actually, there was a movie in this similar vein um, that in the action sports kind of documentary reign that I'll highly recommend that I watched recently called River Runner. Um, it's on Netflix um, and it's done about Scott Lindgren. Um, so most people are probably unfamiliar if you're in unless you're a kayaker. But Scott Lindgren was one of the most famous, accomplished kayakers in the world. He was also a filmmaker and made a majority of the kayak films in kind of the late 90s early 2000s um you know he'd be akin to like it's the the jones brothers for tgr but they're actually starring in the movie um you know steve winter murray way scott gapney and msp and what it really does a really cool job at was chronicling the culture of action sports in the late 90s early 2000s and some of the side effects of that culture um, going through the story of this one guy. Um, in full disclosure, I worked with his brother, Dustin Lindgren, um, as a he was a cameraman for MSP. I know Scott decently well, but didn't know this full story. And it was pretty fascinating to see, like, you know, the the hardcore 
uh, shut the fuck up, drink some concrete and harden the fuck up kind of attitude that was going on in action sports then kind of right when I was getting my start that I really connected with because I remember having that sensation and feeling when I was filming with these guys. It was like, there's no... There's no room for weakness. There's no room for failure. Um, and people are dying left and right around you. So you just got to harden up and do it. And it goes through some of the, the struggles that Scott ended up going through as a filmmaker and a professional athlete um, along the way. I thought it was a really powerful film. I thought it was a great allegory for pretty much all action sports at that time and to till today. Um, and I highly recommend it. Um, really, really good movie. Even if you, you don't, even if you don't kayak at all, like, which I don't, and I don't know anything about the sport. It's a really good documentary. One other thing I wanted to at least mention, and I have not watched this yet, 14 Peaks. Yes. Right. This just came out on Netflix, I think a couple days ago. This is a film, you know, that's kind of documenting uh, Nims Persia, right? Have you had a chance to watch it yet? No, I've, I've got it up on the list for sure, because we've talked about he's popped in the podcast uh, in our mentions and stuff. So I do really want to see like the behind the scenes of it. But yeah, it looks really cool. Yeah, maybe we just put a pin in that one for now. But who knows? Maybe we talk about that on next month's reviewing the news. But I, I can't wait. I'm just really curious to watch that one. So um, 14 Peaks, if that's not on your radar yet. Uh, on Netflix and something that, uh, you know, Cody will be watching it. I don't know what time, one in the morning at some point. Yeah, probably. We got to do a quick thing on the 50 project, the Mount Whitney episode. <laughs> Alex Honnold just continues just when you thought like, there's nothing else this guy could do. Possibly it would be impossible. There have been so many good lines in the 50 project, like so many, it's absurd. But Alex's quote, I don't know how to use an edge anyway, so what difference does it make? <laughs> if that doesn't go down as my all-time favorite 50 project line, I don't, I don't, I don't, I've, I don't know what else to say. I can't fathom. So I think my, my favorite line comes from that episode too. And it's a little different one, but does with Alex as well. Um, and I didn't know that he said this until I watched the first rough cut of the edit. But when he's at the van and he's, he's going like, man, I'm really so struggling out here. I wouldn't be surprised if Cody's back there dying. And then it like yeah. cuts to me and I'm literally dying from heat stroke. <laughs> I was like, that was great. That was one of my favorite lines ever. I laughed my ass off at it so yeah that was a um i can't say it was a fun episode getting heat stroke really sucks um so but it turned out awesome and alex is just one of the most fun people to go on adventures with he's such an entertaining fun guy to talk to i really really enjoyed my time with them um i will say one of these days we're gonna try and rebate it um i really want to take the lessons i learned from it um to answer some of the questions too there was a lot of questions people are like blaming on the fact they wore black and they're like you know oh you're wearing black in the desert yeah. dumbass and you're like yeah. yeah it doesn't really matter actually my ride in black all the time and heat. And before I went into this, I actually was like, yeah, I actually bike in the heat and do better than a lot of people. And it doesn't really bother me like others. So I kind of went in thinking like, I'll be fine on that side of it. 
Long story short, the reason we left at noon was because on our on our test run, when we went and did it before we, uh, when Bjarne and I did it solo just to check it off the list, um, when I did that, uh, what I found was like really bad punch crust, refrozen, horrible snow. And our original start time had us descending probably around five or six o'clock in the afternoon. And since I was told by all of his Alex's friends, don't kill Alex, um, that was my primary goal. And I also started thinking, I'm like, well, don't blow his knee either. So like, don't destroy his climbing season. So I was like, dude, if we're dealing with horrible punch crust, like this, we got to switch up our time. So I started with a much earlier time in the day so that we could ski the ski, the Mountaineers route when it was more just like good corn, uh, corn skiing. What I didn't factor in was my own health and what I didn't know. And this was the actual mistake, not wearing black. It was just knowing that your body actually has to acclimatize to heat, just like it has to acclimatize to altitude. Um, I didn't know that was a thing. Um, and so when you spent all winter and below 40 degrees and then all of a sudden go to 93 degrees and try and bike in it with like, you know, asphalt temperatures over a hundred, you're not going to adapt to it. And Alex living in uh, Las Vegas was very adapted to the heat. So that was my fatal mistake or near fatal mistake of it. Um, Not wearing black because that really has maybe a 5% focus on it. I think not acclimatizing to heat and trying to ride 135 miles was more of the factor. To what extent was Alex like, hey, man, I'm going to kill you if I blow my knee out doing this? Like, did he have a set? You know, you said his friends were like, don't kill Alex or blow his knee out. What What's his attitude like about this stuff? He's so cavalier about all that stuff. He like didn't even, <laughs> he's just like, yeah, I'll figure it out. I suck at skiing, but I'll get down. And then he was actually a little bit worried about the skiing down. I'm like, dude, you'll be fine. It's not that steep. Uh, you can side slip the whole thing you can walk down if you have to. And he's like, yeah, but as far as hurting himself, it might've been ignorance too, not knowing that he doesn't ski that much that, you know, you could blow a knee skiing easily. So he never even brought it up. Um, funny enough, uh, there's a funny backstory. So down through the lowest sections, it actually got kind of dicey. And, uh, I told Alex, I was like, you know, it's really funky down here. That's like thin, there's hidden branches. It's like, you should probably just walk down. And he was like already taking his boots off. I'm like, I'm just walking down this last thousand feet. And we're like, perfect. Well, he decided to go on a random adventure and just go completely off trail. All of a sudden, I get a call from Alex. He's like, hey, um, I don't know where I'm in. It's dark. I'm cliffed out right now. So just let you know, I'll, I'll be a little bit. And then funny enough, I got a text from his wife. Um, she's like, hey, this is Sonny. Uh, is Alex okay? I haven't heard from him. And I've like just got like this call from him, like that he's like fully epicking and doesn't know where he is. And I'm like, yeah, he's fine. He'll be fine. <laughs> just telling Alex's wife that eh, he'll be fine. So um, that was actually probably the most dangerous part of the day. He ended up like down climbing some slab, um, which I wasn't worried about. I figured he'd be fine on it with, with like skis on his back and boots over his shoulder. <laughs> don't kill our national treasure Cody. i know that was like i, I don't think it, it like i could just imagine the headlines or like cody townsend kills alex honold or like <laughs> no it'd be more it wouldn't be that it'd be skier kills alex honold yeah. <laughs> like it would be no name dude <laughs> <laughs> yep oh my god that was that was amazing and uh 
I actually think, by the way, when you said your favorite line in that, I actually, we can check the tape. I don't think Alex said Cody's back there dying. I think he says Cody is probably going to die. Yes, that, that's what he says. <laughs> Cody is probably going to die. That's exactly what he said. <laughs> sure enough, I'm back there. A couple miles just getting, I was like, so just like, dude, I cannot keep up. What the hell? Like, I can bike a long ways. Like, I'm fit. What the hell? Why am I going? Why do I feel so bad? Why is my heart rate through the roof? And he was like, yeah, because you're getting heat stroke and potentially dying. <laughs> yeah. So Al- in Alex's mind, he's like, I don't know, some skier asked me to go on this thing with him and then he died biking. <laughs> totally. So uh, anyway, what are we doing tomorrow? Yeah, that would be pretty much his <laughs> attitude. So yeah. Anyway, that was uh, quite the episode. And man, you've you've been busy, been rolling out more since then. Yep. Gotten, I think, three uh, bonus episode and three episodes since then. So we're on a roll right now. Um, got two more episodes left for the season. So yeah, it's a lot of work. Anything else? Is our work here done? Um, should I let you get back for, you know, by the way, Indy, what a what a trooper. Yeah, he's just asleep here in my lap. He's passed out. He's been pretty chill, baby. Like, I actually think we're really lucky. Like, as much as I say how hard it's been, he like, he sleeps, he eats a lot, then he, like, we can like set him in like on the floor for like an hour and he just will like stare at stuff and play with his little gym thing and he's just like, like cool and he's he's super chill so right now sit on my lap while i record a podcast completely completely sleep it's quite nice well indy i'm a little disappointed that there's no vomit on cody's face or anything Uh, like that but trust um, me i've i got i got shit on and puked on in the span of 20 minutes while changing in between too so so yeah well on that note good luck with the rest of your day Uh, cody thank you uh as always um fun reviewing the news with you we'll pray for snow that's what i was gonna say and i can't wait to hear about your next episodes of friday night lights and how those go hopefully next time you're on you'll be talking about how this is your new favorite thing of all time i don't know we'll see who knows let's see what uh this next month the news has in store for us awesome yeah always fun reviewing the news and talking to you jonathan all right man you take care you too bye Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Cody, as always, for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And I want to give a special shout out to you, dear listener, because it has been really cool in this past week. You all sent in so many of these Spotify wrapped playlists where it was showing what podcasts you listen to the most. And turns out for a lot of you, Blister Podcast is hitting number one. And frankly, it's a lot of Gear 30 and Blister Podcast and Off the Couch and Bikes and Big Ideas. And that was really cool of you guys to share those Spotify rap lists with us and show us that you're tuning in. I want to say thanks, too, to those of you who have been leaving ratings and reviews in Apple Podcasts. A lot of very nice comments in there, and we really do appreciate it. This is a really cool thing we've been doing. We appreciate the articles that you guys send in for us to consider talking about in this Review in the News show. And yeah, it's a really cool community, and thanks for being a part of it. And so, with all that said, from all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. 
And we will talk to you again later this week where you will be able to catch me on Bikes and Big Ideas. It's going to be me talking with our bike editor, David Golay. And then uh, we'll catch you on Gear 30 this Friday, too. All right. Take care, everybody. Talk to you soon.